This is the Food Factor Podcast, the show that talks about the connection between your health and what you eat or don't eat. I'm your host, Stephanie Mahachek, clinical nutritionist, health coach, science nerd, perma student, and mother of four. I love dogs, babies, and most of all, talking about all things health, wellness, and the weirdness of the human body. Thank you for being here. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Food Factor Podcast. I am your host, Stephanie Mahachek. I am a board-certified clinical nutritionist, and we have an exciting topic to talk about today. I am pumped to bring this topic to you. It's one that I've been wanting to talk about for some time now. I've kind of alluded to it in previous episodes, um, but it's so prevalent and it's so important to talk about that I decided I'm going to just talk about it today. So the title of this episode is five ways to improve your depressive symptoms. Now I wanted to be very careful with how I started this episode because I am not telling you that it is a cure for depression. I am not saying anything about it being a diagnosis or a cure for depression. In fact, nothing that I'm about to talk about should be considered medical advice in any way. It is merely to give you more information to have a conversation with your medical providers, your nutritionists, your professionals, um, any any people that, that you seek out for care. So I want to throw that caveat out there because it gets oftentimes, especially in this day and age with social media and with all the access to information that we have, we tend to hear something or read something and interpret that as this is for sure what I should be doing next. And it's not always the case, especially with what we're talking about today, um, which I will get into in a second. But um, but we are going to talk about a little bit of background around how depressive, depressive-like symptoms or depression-like symptoms are contributed and cause other symptoms in your body and how there are five things, there are more than five things, but five things that I wanna talk about today that will help you to uh, lower some of the symptoms and maybe have an impact on how you feel. So let's get started. So depression, like many health conditions, has multiple facets to it. It's multifactorial. There's a lot that goes into having a diagnosis of depression or anxiety or any type of mood um, condition such as that. As you may know, I'm a doctoral candidate in clinical nutrition and I also have a master's degree and I'm board certified, like I said. And in all of my training, I was taught to always look for the root cause. But in the case of depression, there may not be one particular source, but actually many that all kind of mesh together. And this is the case actually for most illnesses, really. Um, Rarely is there just one little thing that needs to be shifted in order to see results. I think oftentimes people think that. They think there's just one thing that I'm missing in order to have a big impact. And and really, it's um, it, it's it's so many layers to, to different illnesses uh, that it's not just one thing. So let's talk about depressive or major depressive disorder affects one in five people in their lifetime worldwide. That's a huge number. That's that's so common to have a depressive disorder. And symptoms tend to involve your motivation, have like an emotional regulation issues, cognitive, physical elements, which makes it highly complex with many possible areas that need attention. Now, depression is now actually being linked to multiple other chronic conditions and morbidities, possibly due to the inflammatory factors associated with it. And you may be like, wait, what? 
inflammation, how is that connected to depression? So I tend to talk fast. So if you need to slow this episode down, that's totally fine. But especially when I get excited about something and throughout the course of my recent semester in my doctoral training, we went over a new, well, maybe new to me concept in the psychology world. And I want to introduce you to the world of psychoneuroimmunology. And by the way, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not an endocrinologist. I'm not an immunologist. Immunologist. I'm a clinical nutritionist. So I won't be diving deep into each and every one of these areas. But my goal here is to show you how they are all connected so that if you are suffering with any of it, you can get a better picture of how things work together and you know who to talk to and how to get a hold of the right people to come up with a plan of action for you. So back to neuro, uh, psychoneuroimmunology. What is it? It is the study of the relationship between immunity, your endocrine system or your hormones, and your nervous system. And it all takes, it, it, it takes into account all of that and your personality and your mood. So this form of psychology has been evolving in the last 40 years and similar to nutrition, as the science and research expands and grows, so do the connections with other specialties like endocrinology and immunology and really gastroenterology for that matter. So how can your mood affect your health? That is a question that I don't know if you've kind of considered at all. I do, but I don't know if you've kind of considered that. How can your mood affect your health? Now, what jumps to mind probably right away is, well, that's easy. When I'm grumpy, I don't want to cook or I don't want to go to the gym. And that may be true, but it goes so much deeper than that. So when I was putting together my thoughts for this episode, I struggled with where to start. When things all correspond and interact with each other, like um, I get a visual of like a traffic roundabout, it's hard to know where to jump in right? Everything's connected. Everything's flowing. It's hard to know where to jump in to start dis discussing all of these concepts. So I just picked one. <laughs> so I want to start with the gut and connect in the immune system and the neurotransmitters and everything else. So you may have heard of the gut brain connection or the brain gut connection. And I want to discuss a little bit about that right now. So gut is a huge source of neurotransmitters and cytokines. Cytokines are involved with your immune system and we'll talk about that in a second, uh, but it's a huge source of neurotransmitters and also hormones. And your microflora or your microbiome or your gut bacteria produce dopamine and serotonin and GABA and they all can impact immune outcomes. So you may be thinking, okay, I've heard of dopamine. That's often talked about with addiction, right? You get a dopamine hit. I've heard of serotonin that often gets talked about with happiness and serotonin is happy. But what is GABA? GABA is also known as gamma aminobutyric acid. And it's another neurotransmitter or basically a chemical messenger in your body that is responsible for a number of processes. But just to keep it kind of simple, you can think of it as the calming neurotransmitter. GABA is calm. It, of course, does way more than that, but that's a big job that it does. It also impacts your gut as well as your sleep. And if you're thinking, okay, cool, she's saying I just need to pop some GABA and I'll be calm. No, that's not what I'm saying. Like everything, you need to bring your body back to a state of balance, not just think the solution is to pump it full of something you think you may be lacking. 
But hang with me, I'm gonna go over some dietary tips to balance out your neurotransmitters at the end. Now, your personality is a combination of your thoughts, your feelings, and your behaviors. But from a science perspective, it's a combination of your neurotransmitters and your neuropeptides. So these chemicals literally shape who we are. I wanna take a moment for you to consider when your diet gets thrown off, maybe you go on vacation, maybe it's a holiday, what do we normally think? I don't feel right. I don't feel like myself. Something's off. I want to get back to normal. Could this be on some level that you're also saying, I want to get my gut back in alignment with my neurochemicals because my neurochemicals, which basically shape my personality, feel out of balance. Just something to consider. So when it comes to your gut and neurochemicals like dopamine and serotonin and GABA, what's the connection? Well, I mentioned that they are produced in the gut, but dopamine helps contract the colon. Serotonin regulates the bowel function, such as you know pushing things through. It also impacts your appetite. And GABA reduces pain and also helps with motility. Now the gut has receptors for all of these, meaning it uses neurotransmitters to help it function. It also produces large amounts of neurotransmitters. Your gut bacteria, specifically the lactobacillus and the bifidobacteria and the bacteroides strains all either produce neurotransmitters or influence them in some way. So lactobacillus increases GABA, which helps lower anxiety and improves, you know, staying asleep. Does this mean you need to run out though and load up on lactobacillus? I don't know. Sleep issues as well as depression and anxiety issues are all multifaceted and most likely you have more than one contributor to that. Uh, but please, again, consult a medical professional before you change anything about your medication or your supplement routine. Now, let's talk about probiotics for a second. Most people are familiar with them. Maybe you've seen them. Maybe you've taken one. Maybe you're on one right now. There is a new, a new-ish theory on probiotics called psychobiotics. Psychobiotics are essentially probiotics that reduce or influence psychological symptoms in some way. So depression, um, you know, depression is actually associated with high amounts of bacteroides and some, which is a strain of, of bacteria in your gut. And some studies show an improvement with lactobacillus and bifidobacteria with depression. It is absolutely in its infancy as far as research goes, though. And before you go out and start tinkering with your hormones and your neurotransmitters, just know that more research needs to be done in this field, but it is definitely growing and expanding. So essentially, this means your digestive system influences your mood, right? If your digestion is off, those neurotransmitters, which are directly impacting your mood and how you feel, are off. Your mood, though, can also influence your gut, right? Have you ever felt butterflies in your stomach or had, you know, diarrhea when you were anxious about something? That's essentially a thought having an influence on your gut. So it goes both ways. It's a, it's a bi-directional, you know, pathway between your gut and your brain. And it is so common for those with depression or other mood disorders to have gut issues, and on the flip side, it's super common for those with gut issues to either develop or have had along the way some sort of mood dysregulation. I see this all the time. And in fact, I'm so not surprised when I see somebody is taking a, 
um, depression or anxiety medication. I don't even hardly have to ask how their digestion is anymore because usually it's bad. It usually it's not, it hasn't been good in a while. So how, that's kind of a brief overview of the brain gut connection, gut, gut brain connection. Um, and again, I could go, I could do an entire series and I probably will on the gut brain connection because it's fascinating and there, it goes so much deeper than what I just did a high level overview of. But I want to tie in because we've got a lot more to cover. I want to tie in how it affects your immune system. So have you ever gotten sick after a stressful or super busy time? Let's talk about that for a second. Immune cells are produced to help maintain the homeostasis of the body and disruption of these cells and processes can result in diseases such as depression. The immune system can be found in the digestive system. Actually, like 90% of the immune system is found in your gut. And if you think about it, that makes total sense. The biggest connection between us and the outside world comes from when we ingest something. So even if you have given this example before, even if you have an apple, but it has a bacteria or a virus on it, your body, it's now in your body and your body has to immediately defend it otherwise it could take over so your digestive system and your immune system or i'm sorry your immune system is in your digestive system because of that because when we drink something eat something put your hand to your mouth any way that it gets in your body it goes it can go through your gut as well and so the immune system has to be there to fight off anything immediately before it goes systemic all throughout your body now if we focus on depression this can actually be linked to intestinal bacterial imbalances like bacteroides, lactobacillus, and bifidobacterial imbalances. I'll explain more in a second. I want to talk quick about some immune functionality and immune system vocabulary. So cytokines. You may have heard this term before, maybe you haven't. A cytokine is a type of protein made by the immune system and non-immune cells that have an effect on the immune system. So there are many different types of, of cytokines, and I don't want to get too detailed about each one, but just know some are pro-inflammatory and some are anti-inflammatory. Now, pro-inflammatory cytokines, um, such as IL-1 and interleukin-6, like they've, they've been linked to depression, which can be the result of or the cause of lower anti-inflammatory markers. So is it a chicken and egg situation? Are your anti-inflammatory immune markers lower and that causes the, the higher amount of the pro-inflammatory ones or do the pro-inflammatory ones suppress the anti-inflammatory ones? Chicken and the egg situation. Now, prolonged inflammatory cytokines disrupt neuronal function and signaling, which can impact your mood and cognition. That is a fancy way of saying pro-inflammatory cytokines can make you grumpy and impact your mood. The pro-inflammatory ones aren't necessarily bad, all right? I think, I think we hear pro-inflammation all the time and we think, oh, that's got to be bad, right? They serve a purpose, but when they aren't in balance, you can see certain issues happen like inflammation and illness, et cetera. It all kind of plays, into, it plays a part. So these pro-inflammatory cytokines are necessary when you cut your skin or you break a bone those are the ones that signal for inflammation to help protect the area that was injured. Now, when it comes to internal inflammation, this is very similar. You can say if you are, if your body is constantly peppered with things that cause a 
an immune response, a pro-inflammatory immune response. So we're looking at food sources. We're looking at chemicals in the environment and in your water and in your food. We're looking at preservatives. We're looking at all the things that you hear that are inflammatory. This is why it's causing an immune response because your body looks at those items as a threat. They are not used for nutrients. They are a threat. So it establishes these pro-inflammatory responses to help protect it. It's, it's no different. It doesn't know the difference between you getting a cut on the outside of your body versus you ingesting a bunch of fried foods that are causing the same response on the inside of your body, if that makes sense. So it's, it's the same response. It's just now it's on a, a whole bigger scale because of the systemic nature of our blood and our immune system and all of that. So when you look at your inflammatory markers, if you have high inflammation in your body, that is the cause of so many illnesses like depression, like Alzheimer's disease, like high blood pressure, like cholesterol issues. All of these are very inflammatory conditions. Pretty much every chronic condition has an inflammatory component to it. So when you think about that, you want to look at, okay, I don't want to develop all of these conditions. What can I do about it? What has the biggest impact on all of these conditions and that inflammatory response? Your lifestyle, your nutrition, how you're taking care of yourself. All of that plays a huge role in developing this response in your immune system. So to tie it all together, when you ingest something, when and, and again, it's not like if you have a cookie, you're all of a sudden going to develop diabetes. No, this is a repeated pattern of different things happening within your body. So when we come at it from, again, I'm biased, I look at it from a nutritional perspective. How are you eating on a consistent basis? Is that contributing to an immune response? And there's a number of things that can contribute to the immune response, uh, but quality of the foods is a big part of that. So if the quality of your foods is not uh, where your body is wanting it, it's going to have this immune response, which is going to cause a disruption in the neurochemicals and neurotransmitters within your gut. It's going to cause your immune system to be on high alert because all of a sudden it feels like it's under attack. And it's going to cause your mood to shift because the neurotransmitters are not getting properly uh, created and utilized and processed and getting to where they need to go. So you can kind of hopefully see how it's all connected. And then when you're in a grumpy mood, or you're in a depressive mood or an anxious mood, how does that impact how you eat, right? It's a, it's a continuing circle. It is a traffic roundabout, if you will, of a cycle that can happen. So, and I want to talk quick about the quality of food. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna tread lightly on this topic because it is heavily political. Uh, and there's a lot of theories on it and there's a lot of just junk around about it, but I. I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't at least bring it up to, to add to your thoughts around this topic. Roundup. Roundup is sprayed on a lot of chemical or sprayed on a lot of crops, as you probably have been heard. Um, but Roundup is an antibiotic. And Roundup is used a lot in farming, specifically on wheat. So if you or your family eat a lot of wheat or other crops sprayed with Roundup, you can be unknowingly giving yourself antibiotics, which can, of course, impact your gut bacteria, specifically your lactobacillus. And lactobacillus 
as I mentioned, is important for certain neurotransmitters like GABA. So do you see the connection with all of these kids nowadays with mood dysregulation disorders and anxiety? And I actually was speaking at a school and the principal told me the percentage of children that are on, this is an elementary school, by the way, the percentage of children that are on antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications. Do you see a connection there? I'm just, I'm, again, just throwing this information out there. But do you, does that mean that everyone needs to give up wheat? Maybe, but should you focus on eating more organic and non-GMO foods if you can? Yes, probably. So it's not a matter of everything needs to be, we always jump to those extremes, everything needs to be eliminated altogether. No, but look at the majority of what is in you or your children's diet. And especially if they're having some neurological issues, uh, mood issues, behavioral issues, always look at the diet, always start there. So I don't want to leave you hanging. Like I mentioned, there are uh, five steps or five things that you can consider when it comes to your mood and how that, that impacts your health. So step number one, sleep. <laughs> You're like, probably want to punch me in the face. I know. Sleep is super important when it comes to mood and uh, feelings and behavior and all of that. A detailed plan of action related to how you are sleeping needs to be completed. So when you're working with your doctor, when you're working with a functional nutritionist, when you're working with anybody, psychologist, therapist, anybody, you need to be addressing your sleep. And if the person, if you struggle to fall asleep, that means something. If you struggle to stay asleep, that means something. Those neurotransmitters each do something different when it comes to sleep. So assessing, of course, the easy place to start is assessing your proper sleep hygiene. You know, things like cutting off the screens two hours prior before bed, limiting your caffeine, especially in the afternoons, um, creating that right and perfect sleep environment for you. So if you need total darkness, if you need a fan, if you need it cold, whatever, creating that total sleep environment should be completed first. But finding any barriers, whether it's staying asleep or falling asleep in general also need to be addressed. Again, sleep is so multifaceted that it could also be a hormone issue. Uh, uh, sleep disruptors like hormones have been linked to worsening depression symptoms. Um, that may not come as a shock to you, but it, is it a hormone issue? Is it a neurotransmitter issue? Is it a gut and digestive issue? Is it simply stress? Is it food related? Meaning like something that you ate prior to going to sleep cause some issues with your digestion, which wakes you up? Is it a food uh, pattern issue where you're going long periods of time without eating and, and it's a blood sugar imbalance issue now? There's so many factors that could go into sleep and why your sleep is off. But when you can get your sleep in alignment, this can obviously help with mood and depressive symptoms. From a nutritional standpoint, I would highly suggest that you keep a food and symptoms journal related to sleep. And, you know, keep that for a week or a couple of weeks or so and just see, are you noticing patterns between the types of foods you're having and the timing of the foods when you're having them with, with your quality of sleep? I cannot stress how uh, informative this can be 
just to simply start writing down, okay, today, and you don't have to measure things. I'm just saying you simply write down today. I had tacos today. I had this, I went to bed at this time. I last ate at this time. Finding those connections is going to be so important for you. Um, okay. So number two thing that can help improve depressive symptoms, therapy. I cannot stress this enough. Therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy actually offers an array of tools to help someone process past, present, and future traumas or perceived traumas, okay? In, if the source of, of your depression is stemming from previous beliefs or ways of thinking or trauma, therapy will help you. It has been proven effective in improving depressive symptoms as well as reducing future symptoms, in somebody, it gives you the tools to help manage future stressors before they even come. Um, as part of a holistic approach to helping a client with depression, I often connect people with therapists in their area because it is so important to do that. Especially as you can imagine with nutrition, a lot of beliefs and a lot of theories on what they, uh, what somebody needs or how they should or shouldn't be eating can stem from previous traumas, previous food, uh, food traumas, food patterning, things that we've inherited from parents as far as like food perspectives, all of that. Um, so therapy is wonderful to help bust through some of those. It sounds so um, like simple to be like, oh, I got depression. How can I improve it? Go to therapy. Yes. I mean, it, it does not have to be, I, I'm so, I'm so happy to see that the stigma around therapy of the past is slowly starting to subside uh, because the more people can talk about, yes, therapy helped me, the better. Um, but it does not have to be a permanent thing. It's not, uh, many therapists will even say therapy shouldn't be a lifelong thing. And I mean, for, for many, for some, yes, if you're dealing with extensive traumas, of course, that is going to be a, a wonderful part of your wellness routine. But for many, it's a matter of, of getting things resolved and getting the tools you need to process things effectively, and then you're, you're good to go. So therapy is huge. All right, number three. Now, this is, where, this is where I want to really spend some time. Number three is diet, your diet. Not only is diet quality important for the management of depression and depressive symptoms, but dietary patterns and habits are also crucial. With depressive symptoms being somewhat subjective, you know, meaning like you may feel at a 10 out of 10 depressed in the same situation as somebody else who feels like a three out of 10 depressed. Um, it's subjective, but understanding that someone's nutritional needs are equally as individual as as how you feel your depressive symptoms are. So balancing your blood sugar throughout the day by avoiding long periods of time without eating, as well as paying attention to your personal hunger triggers can help reduce some of your symptoms. I'm talking about those of you, and maybe it's you, who get the hangries. This is a type of a cognitive symptom, right? You get the hangries. This is a mood related thing to your gut. You're hungry. Your, your uh, neurotransmitters are low. Your energy is low. You get the brain fog. You're feeling all sorts of ways. You got to eat. How better do you feel when you eat something? There's a reason for that. But focusing on food quality and nutrient sufficiency is also important, specifically zinc, magnesium, 
essential fatty acids and B vitamins are all really relinked and show to reduce the risk of depression. Does, does that mean you need to go out and pop a zinc supplement? No. You can definitely get zinc through food, magnesium through food, fatty acids through food, B vitamins through food. But I want to highlight those specifically because those are heavily researched when it comes to depression. Um, so again, I, I think people hear this and they think, oh, I need to just take a multivitamin or I need to take a supplement that have those in it specifically. Or could you simply look at how you're eating? Is it easy enough to just get multiple sources of zinc and magnesium throughout your day? This are things like avocado and turkey and green leafy vegetables and fruits. Those, you know, you're probably getting some of those anyways. This is a reason why I'm constantly harping on you to eat a rainbow and get your five to seven to nine servings of fruits and veggies a day. It can help. So um, pro-inflammatory diets. So these are the things like the standard American diet. We're eating fast foods, we're eating high sugary foods and drinks, drinks again. Um, we're even eating a lot of things with preservatives and eating a lot of chemicals and food colorings and dyes. All of these have been shown to increase the immune response, resulting in systemic inflammation and an increased risk for depression. Again, depression is a inflammatory condition. So you have to look at all the things that are inflaming you. So including more whole foods in your diet, high amounts of phytonutrients. Remember, phyto means plant, plant nutrients through fruits and veggies and plant-based proteins and some animal proteins too, like fish and poultry and seafood are all recommended to reduce inflammation. You think of anti-inflammatory diet, think of Mediterranean diet. They're eating lots of, in the Mediterranean region, they're eating lots of olives and olive oils and avocados and fish and, and their uh, depression rates are lower. All right, number uh, four. Oh, and, and one more on, on the diet part of things. Drink some water. Drink some water. I can't tell you how many adults I talk to who are like, I don't like water. <laughs> it's like that's like saying I don't like air. Like just drink some water. You're grown-ups. Drink some water. You don't have to make it boring. I get that a lot. Is water so boring? You don't have to make it boring, but does that mean you add a big squirt of the colored preservative sugary drops to the water? No. But that could mean you take a orange slice and you squeeze that in there. It could mean that you cut some cucumbers to make it fancy like a spa and put that in there. Um, you know, any type of little uh, fruit or vegetable, you can, you can infuse it with different herbs. You can put a, a little splash of herbal tea in there just to give it some flavor. There's lots of ways that you can flavor your water. It doesn't have to be boring, but allow yourself some grace with this too. If you are going from drinking something super sweet, like those, you know, I don't want to name a brand, but we all know like those powders that you dissolve in water or the things that you squirt in the water to make it flavored. Those are really, really, really sweet, really sweet. And remember back in episodes, I think it was five or six or whatever the sugar episodes were, those are, can be, some of those artificial sweeteners can be up to 20,000 times sweeter than sugar. So if you're used to, if your palate is used to those super sweet things, going from that to a little bit of orange squeezing your plain water is going to seem really dull. But give yourself some grace with this. If that means wean off of some of that stuff in stages, that's okay. But just know that it, of course, it's going to taste bland because it's not 20,000 times sweeter than water or sweeter than sugar. Um, also, this is just a little aside, but 
If you are wanting to get off of sugar, I do have the upcoming sugar experiment. So I'll link that all in the show notes where we are going to test out how much better we feel eating nothing but whole foods for two weeks. So if you are interested in that, if you're like, oh, that kind of sounds interesting. I wonder how much better I'll feel. Click on the link in the show notes and you can join that challenge. All right. Number four, movement. Exercise. I, when I use the word exercise, people tend to get rigid. <laughs> so I've, I've just started using movement because that seems a little bit more uh, receptive to people. So exercise or movement has long been shown to improve your mood, right? You have those endorphins. You hear about the exercise endorphins or the runner's high. You, you, we've all kind of heard that. However, when it comes to depression, there are actual brain-associated improvements that can occur. Many studies find that an increase in cardiovascular activities results in an increase in hippocampal volume of the brain. This is what's controlling your mood and your decision-making and all of that. Consistent exercise has also shown to improve interhemispheric communication in the brain. So that's like your brain hemispheres talking to each other. It improves that. And it's considered especially beneficial in depressed older adults. So, that means that no matter what your age, if you're depressed or not depressed, but this is specifically talking about depressed older adults, exercise or movement can be a benefit, a huge benefit. It starts to get the, the hemispheres of the brain talking. Anytime you can improve the communication in the brain, in my uneducated opinion on the brain, it's a good thing. So exercise may reduce atrophy in the brain, white matter lesions in the brain and improve cognitive function, especially in those suffering from depression later in life. Again, you hear about white matter lesions. You see some of those um, scans that they show of uh, dementia brains and um, different uh, illnesses within the brain in older adults. And this is saying that exercise can reduce the atrophy in the brain. Atrophy of anything is usually not a good idea, right? I mean, unless you're talking about different, um, you know, cancer cells or something like that. But atrophy of your brain is probably not a good thing. And this is saying that that exercise may reduce the atrophy in the brain. I will link, this is actually from a study in 2017. I'll link this study below if you want to read more about that. Um, but when it comes to exercise, a lot of people think they have to go balls to the wall with their exercise plan. And you absolutely do not. Walking is a wonderful exercise that's free, as far as I know. And it, most people can do walking. Now, again, there's always the, the situation where maybe you have an injury, maybe you don't have a safe walking area. Um, some of those barriers can come up when you're trying to establish a new pattern. So take a look at how, how true some of those statements are. Are you totally injured where you can't walk at all? Okay, maybe. Are you just a little bit sore? Do you have sore feet? Are you having issues with your knees? Is it possible to do two minutes of walking? Is it possible to walk in a pool? Is it possible to walk in a, a very, um, or with um, supportive shoes or inserts or something like that? If you don't like walking, that's okay. There's many other ways to move your body. Look at free YouTube videos, look at any of the streaming services now usually all have exercise components to them or, or things you can check out. Um, strength training is, of course, a big thing as well, but this specific study was talking more about uh, cardiovascular, but strength training is important as well. Um, but you don't have to do it all day, every single day. I actually would recommend an exercise routine based on your current fitness level. 
But ultimately, working up to 150 minutes of moderate aerobic activity and two to three days of strength training is what's typically recommended by the American Heart Association. So if you're not there yet, that's okay. That's about 30 minutes a day, most days. Um, but if you're not there yet, that's okay. That's why I said start at your current fitness level. If that just simply means buying shoes that are going to be supportive, if that just means mapping out a location like in a park or on a greenway or something like that, that is safe for you, that's okay. Get out there for one minute. Do one minute down and back to the mailbox. Whatever works for you at whatever place you're starting from is okay. But just know that exercise is a huge benefit for those who suffer from mood and, and depressive symptoms. All right, and the last one, this one might come to a shock, come as a shock to, to many of you, or maybe it's not one that you've considered. Loneliness, that, that need for community and loneliness and that social isolation. And social isolation is something that many people have felt throughout the pandemic, as well as post-pandemic. We humans are social by nature, and this creates a sense of purpose and belonging. When this is reduced, an increased risk of depression can occur. Chronic social isolation was also found to enhance depressive symptoms, including a higher neuroendocrine response when then placed in a social, social situation. So these are the people who are um, socially isolated for so long that when you do give them in a social, social situation, they tend to have anxiety because of it, because they kind of forgot how to interact with other people. So again, this is a study, I'll link it in the show notes if you wanted to read more about it. But as a therapeutic approach for someone with depression, encouraging them to find their purpose and enhance their social relationships can be a big part of the treatment. And again, this might be something that a therapist may work on with somebody. Um, and, and I think knowing your own boundaries is going to be important with this. It doesn't mean you have to like go out and start doing public speaking. It doesn't mean that you have to go out and start doing every social event ever on your, you know, Facebook notifications. It just means that maybe you go and talk to a neighbor. Maybe you go for a walk and simply say hi to anybody who passes by you. It's amazing the connection that you can feel to somebody even from getting a smile from them, from a perfect stranger, just going to a store, passing them the aisle and saying hi with a smile. It's amazing what that can do to your mood. So these five kind of uh, areas to approach, of course, all need to be based on where you're starting from and modified accordingly over the course of maybe a few months or possibly even a year or two. And going at the pace that you are comfortable is going to be key for you. So focusing on key areas like your gut health, which includes your motility and your microbiome variety, and, and also uh, talking about sleep hygiene and movement will help you feel better relatively quickly. But couple that with the support from a therapist and possibly a medical doctor or a GI doctor, um, you will likely have the tools needed to help reduce your depressive symptoms and keep them at bay. So obviously with the nutritional side of things, there's many things you can do. I, list, I went over a few of them uh, and there's always more to talk about as far as like how to uh, improve your gut health and improve your gut functioning and the bacteria in your gut. But hopefully this helped draw the connection between what happens when you improve your nutrition, the trickle down effect that can happen with your gut, with your neurotransmitters with your mood, with your hormones, with your immune system, all of that can really be impacted simply by changing the quality, the quantity, and the timing of your foods. 
So as I mentioned, I wanted to put a little bit of an experiment together for myself and anyone who wanted to do this and talking all the time about how improving your food can improve other things like your mood and your digestion and all of that, I wanted to do a little experiment. So I'm putting, I put together the sugar experiment and it is 14 days, just two weeks of eating whole foods and no added sugar and just seeing how different you feel after going through just two weeks of that. And that will be coming up in January. I believe it's January 8th. I will put the link to sign up for that in the show notes if you are interested or if you know uh, somebody who might be interested in that. It's not a diet. We're not doing 30 days of anything. It's just an experiment to show you how much different you can feel. And it provides you with the support and the community and of course the recipes to do that on your own in a low-key way that's not a ton of pressure. It's simply, uh, let's look at the cause and effect of what we're doing. And uh, again, that's starting up in January, so in a few weeks, but I will put the link for that in the show notes. Or if you just want to set up a time to chat with me, I still will be doing those free consultations, about 20 minute consultations, that if you have some questions on how I work as a clinical nutritionist, how I could possibly help you, what kind of symptoms and issues you're having, uh, go ahead and sign up for that. Those are free, it's a free 20 minute consult. I'll put the link for that in the show notes as well. And uh, I'd love to be able to chat with you and see how I can help. So I hope you found this somewhat helpful. I hope it was you were able to draw some connections on it. If you have any questions related to anything that I mentioned in this episode, please feel free to reach out for me on social media. I am at Food Factor Nutrition on uh, pretty much all social media. And uh, I'd be happy to answer questions for you and have a chat with you. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful rest of the week. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Food Factor Podcast. It is my personal mission to help people make the best food choices that they can for their particular situation. So if you found this episode helpful, I would be so grateful if you would share it with a friend or a family member or somebody who needs to hear this information and also leave me a review. Those are the things that help get this podcast seen and heard by more people who could use the help as well. I really appreciate your support. Thank you so much for listening.